Hello and welcome to an extra episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. In this episode, Daniel Harding and I carry on from where we left off, and we talk about everything from conducting, through flying, and on to football. We hope you enjoy it. We have finished at Berlin with Claudio, and we're out into the big wide world. Those very early guest conducting experiences, do you look back on them fondly, or do you look back on them there with a sort of older person's eyes and think differently of them? No, I'm pretty relaxed about it in the sense of, thank God it's a long time ago and you, you hope a lot of things <laughs> have forgotten. Um, precisely because um, you can get away with a lot when you're conducting, especially if an orchestra's on your side, as we spoke about earlier. Um, it takes an awfully long time to learn to do it properly. I mean, it takes a lifetime to get anywhere with it. And and it only doesn't take longer than that because a lifetime's you know, human lifetime's not long yeah, enough. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was lucky enough to get an enormous amount of experience as a very young man. And I look back on a lot of what I did and I wasted a lot of those opportunities um, by just not knowing how to profit from them. I think I got away with so much in terms of being out of my depth and somehow, and I, out of my depth and also probably not very charming. Um, and yet somehow I managed to get away with that. And I'm still here, um, but I but I collected a massive amount of experience. And at some point, even the most dim-witted uh, fool um, manages to learn from that kind mm. of amount of experience. And so, but I do remember certainly Seiji Ozawa when I was a student in Tangwood, and he said to us, and and um, I remember Robert Spano, um, who was. Uh, uh, teaching us in Tangway back then, the music director in Atlanta, a wonderful man. Mm. And he also kept uh, pushing this point. So those first years, you have to be ready for how lonely they are. And it's funny that of all the things, and I, and I had quite a lot of time with Ozawa, and there are many, many things he said to me that I'll never forget, but that's the one that was almost the most useful thing, is to know that you're not alone in the mm. loneliness of it. Um, and you you go out there, for me it was in my early 20s, every week you're in a different city um, where you know nobody and you arrive on Monday morning um, knowing that you're about to conduct things that you don't know how to conduct them because everything is for the first time. You're in front of 100 people who know each other incredibly well. Sometimes they'll be friendly, sometimes they won't be friendly, but they're all, even with the best will in the world, they're waiting for you to prove that you should be there. Mm. Um, and then rehearsal finishes and you go back to your hotel room all on your own until you start the thing again. And that's, it's really hard. And I've always remembered that when I speak to, to younger conductors who are just starting out in the career. And so you can talk about all the technical musical things you want, but don't be shocked that it's lonely. Mm. Um, and, and it's funny that of all the, yeah, of all the memories I have of those first few years, I think that is still the strongest. I was lucky in the fact that my formative years conducting I was doing it at the same time as being a professional violinist so mm. I was doubly busy but yeah I do remember those early weeks going away and thinking my god it's quiet all of a sudden you know you finish a rehearsal <laughs> and you're, you're left on your own and you're thinking well normally yeah. I, I might go for a pint with my mates after a rehearsal but now you, know, you ain't got no mates now you know, exactly <laughs> yeah yeah and it takes many years of you returning to orchestra to be to make friends, to be able to then say, yeah. you know, fancy beer. But yeah, you're right, those early days are rather lonely. 
Jumping ahead, Daniel, I'm just going to read out a list of places where you've had positions. Um, Trondheim in Norway, yeah. Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie in Bremen, Germany, Mahler Chamber Orchestra, which is pretty much all of Europe and has you know people from every nationality in it yeah. and beyond. Yeah. Uh, Orchestra de Paris, Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra, and also principal guest at the LSO. I mean, that's basically most of Europe. But I'm going to focus in on, let's pick on two cities where its inhabitants. I know the orchestras don't necessarily all come from Paris or London, but I wonder what yeah. it's like to conduct those two orchestras. You know, what are their what are their attitudes like? What are their how do they rehearse? How do they they differ? It's funny. One of the things that I discovered about the Orchestre de Paris, which I I wouldn't have expected, is that they're kind of in many ways and in in, in the best ways, much more like a London orchestra than you would possibly imagine. Right, okay. And by that I mean a kind of phenomenal ability to cut through the complications of something and get it fixed and organized very, very fast. Um, and we think um, that that's a kind of particular skill of, uh, of uh, English-speaking orchestras. I mean, certainly mm. London orchestras or English orchestras are very, very famous for that ability. And that's probably a lot to do with necessity. Um, and I know that US orchestras kind of have that um, phenomenal ability too. I mean, you, you go to, to, to orchestras in, in, in England or in, in the United States and you do not waste time at the beginning of rehearsal while they figure out how to play a piece. It's all there and they kind of look at you, okay, what are you kind of do now? Um, and I have to say that wasn't, um, in, in, in the kind of cliched ideas we have about orchestras, it wasn't something I would have imagined about a French orchestra, but the Orchestra Perry, the same, you know, we did incredibly difficult things. You know, the Harrison Burt was all earth dancers or, yeah. Whatever it was, and and uh, you know some um, Jörg Widman pieces and things, and there was um, an incredible ability to cut through the and get straight to the heart of the matter and organise things, and that's that's really impressive, and that makes um that makes life fascinating for a conductor because you can just get straight down to to, to more interesting challenges. So what are the differences? And again, what what in English we, we refer to as the kind of the Dunkirk spirit. Mm. Um, so, um, I found that too in Paris. There's a kind of healthy cynicism about things, and a and a practicality, and a and a and a good dose of black humour, and mm. an ability to um look at oneself from the outside and see the funny things about it. And and I think that for us, for the English, that's very important. Um, and we feel instantly at home with people who are like that. And and again, I found that also in Paris, and it's incredibly. There's an incredible warmth in a group when they can they can laugh at themselves. There are differences. I mean, you're the string player. Um, I do think that the national schools of of uh, of playing are probably much less pronounced now than they were. And I'm I hesitate to talk to you about um, things to do with string playing and string technique, but there is definitely uh, a French school of string playing, which has um, what seems to me a different set of priorities about how one uses the bow. Mm. The thing that we worked on a lot when I was at the Orchestra Paris was about density of sound. Mm, it was, yeah. I, don't, I don't judge the French school, nor do I say what their way of playing in that orchestra is um, as its basis. But my experience was the thing we kept working on, the thing we talked about a lot, the thing we kept looking for is, is, is uh, a sound that has more center and more density. And that's what made the difference. And finding a way then 
um, that when we needed to play something that's loud, um, that, that the depth and the richness of the sound um, expands with the volume um, and doesn't narrow. That felt to me quite specific. That, the certain colors of that felt to me quite specific about um, them as a French orchestra. Although people will tell you here um, that it's the, the most international of the French orchestra. I'm not sure that that's true anymore. Um, mm. Because I think that, that all of the Paris orchestras in their different ways um, uh, are certainly extremely capable of being international um, as well as, uh, as well as retaining their local dialect if they want to. Do you think it's a shame that probably in the last 40 to 50 years, the world's orchestras have all started to sort of sound, or at least try to sound the same? You know, in the 1970s, you could turn on BBC Radio 3, listen to a broadcast and probably guess if it was the Leningrad or if it was uh, the Orchestra de Paris or if it was the LSO or mm. if it was the Chicago Symphony. You could probably guess, whereas now I think that's mu a much harder game if you turned on Radio 3 and listened to an orchestra to guess what the orchestra was. Do you yeah. think it's a shame? I, I, I think it's a very, very difficult question mm. because I think that as... um. As, a, as an outsider, you'd say, I want to be able to listen to that Czech Philharmonic sound or the mm -hmm. Staatskapelle Dresden sound or the, um, or the, you know, the, the famous old, you know, the Philadelphia sound, let's say, because I mean, that, that, that was the, the trademark on the, on the record. And, and I can understand that. And, the, and I love that too, and kind of bathing in, in different colored water or whatever. Mm. Um, but as a musician, I, I don't find that as interesting. I think that if you're listening, if you're playing uh, Debussy and if you're playing La Mer or if you're playing Peleas, it's also not the same Debussy. I want it to sound like the piece of music we're playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah um, you, don't, you, don't want, so, you don't want the Chicago sound in inverted commas playing Debussy. You want it to sound like Debussy. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think thinking about personality is a tricky one. And we're a little bit saying, I mean, you talk about that as a conductor. So, you know, people say, oh, you should imprint your personality on the piece. I, I, nobody comes to a concert to hear my personality. They come to hear the music. Mm. And my job is not to put me in front of the music. But it doesn't really matter that because, because there's always going to be something of your personality. You can't help it. Um, as long as you're not trying to show everybody what your personality is. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah. And so I, I can see both sides of this thing about orchestras. All I know is from experience. When I'm music director of an orchestra over the years, my instinct hasn't been to try and preserve um, their identity, that you can always hear who they are. My instinct has always been to try and um, make the orchestra like a chameleon, that we become yeah. the music we're playing. And I think it's like with an actor, um, you know, Sir Anthony Hopkins, you can still see it's him even when he becomes somebody else. But he's not trying to make you see him before the person he's, he's acting. He's, He's, his goal is to, so I'm speaking on his behalf, but my, my feeling is, you know, my feeling is a great actor wants to become the person, the role they're acting. Yes. Um, and, and the fact that they have a strong personality and that will always inflect it uh, is a given, but it shouldn't be the goal. That's an interesting metaphor because, you know, I can think of certain actors who take that, what you've just said, and... I know exactly that. They want to be the person that they're portraying as an actor. But then we all know actors who you could basically level the, the accusation at, that they always play the same role. 
Um, yeah. And so that might be, you know, the old-fashioned idea of an orchestra sound is the actor who always plays the same role. It doesn't matter whether they're a goodie or a baddie. They always seem to be the same. So then maybe the answer is um, the Czech Philharmonic sound. Maybe every orchestra should sound like the Czech Philharmonic when they're yeah. playing Vorsak. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you shouldn't sound, you shouldn't use that sound when you're playing Vivaldi or, 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 or Ravel, you know. I mean, no. um, and, but of course, hearing the same music played with a different accent, with a different uh, lilt, is of course incredibly seductive and incredibly beautiful. Um, but I, I just don't think we should get too hung up on our own personalities because they'll always be there. Is there anything about the, all of those jobs um, I listed? Any of those places you wanted to mention in particular? No, I mean, it's, you know, I spent one way or another almost my entire career with one foot in Scandinavia. Mm. I mean, from my first job in Trondheim and the years I spent with, as principal guest in Norshoping, and, um, and now I've been, what, 13 years music director in, in Stockholm. And the, the phenomenal abilities and uh, generosity and openness of Scandinavian musicians has been a constant in my life. I think sometimes in, uh, on, in Central or Mainland Europe or whatever outside, we, we can be a little ignorant um, of the incredible level of music making that goes on up there. And it, it, yeah, the, the Scandinavian orchestras have been um, the big love story of my, of my life as a musician so far. It is phenomenal. And I don't just, I'm just talking about, you know, kind of Stockholm, but you go to any, any of the orchestras all over Sweden, any of the orchestras all over Norway, the level is just phenomenal. Mm. And, and the humility, the thing of, okay, um, you know, what's next? We've achieved that. What can we do now? What can we learn now? Um, it's really, it's really inspiring. And uh, no, I mean, I just wanted to, that's just my little hymn of praise to the, to the Scandinavians. I agree, I agree completely. I mean, I've worked in Finland, and yeah. their attitude is exactly the same. I've also worked with an yeah. old, old orchestra in Trondheim and had a wonderful week doing a, a film music concert with them. Um, oh, yeah. Sadly, yeah. The, the, sadly, the repeat doesn't look like it's going to happen, um, or the yeah. episode two. Um, yeah. But again, they, they just wanted to make everything, every different piece of music sound as it should do, and with such yeah. skill and good humour and yeah, there are some great wow. orchestras in Scandinavia. When you come to learn a new score, are you somebody who sits at a piano and learns it? I don't know what your, your pianist skills are like. Or do you sit at Luckily, a desk? You'll never know. Oh. <laughs> or, do you, or do you sit at a desk um, and how do you approach it? And also, for the conducting geeks amongst us, are you somebody who writes a lot in your scores or not? Well, that's the, that's the easiest question to answer. No, I don't, I don't write anything in my scores. Um, I, you know, there's the odd piece, oh, you know, the Thomas Ades Tolton Tance or the Earth Dances or something where, yeah, if it's, if the score is printed in a way where, you know, those pieces with such complex meter changes and where often they're printed that you simply can't see that on the page in the moment, then I'll write in to my score purely technical instructions that I don't screw up, that I can, I will write what's necessary to help me read what's on the page. Mm. But beyond that, I pretty much don't write anything in. And that's, to, and that's not a, 
there's no philosophy behind that it's just the way i've always been and i find that um i find that once i've thought something once the thought's gone through my mind and i've associated it with the moment in the piece i'm not going to forget it anyway mm-hmm. um and i don't like things distracting my eye when i'm conducting so I have no shame about writing something in a score and I'll write something in if I want to, or I need to, I just notice that I don't. Um, and, and, you know, very often I'll study a piece on my iPad um, and then I'll turn up to the orchestra and say, Oh, have you got a score I can use in, um, for the rehearsal? Um, because there's nothing I've written. I haven't written my instructions to myself down. So it's mm. a clean score. I'm very, very happy to start from a clean score. And, you know, normally, I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And you were saying before how beautiful scores can be and how fascinating. And in the end, that's where the truth is. And, I, and I'm very happy to, to work from a clean version of that. How do I learn a new piece? That's a, it's a, there are so many different levels of what, what does it mean, a new piece? There are pieces that you've never conducted before, but you've known all your life and maybe played yourself. There'll be yeah. more of them for you than for me. There'll be pieces you've never conducted before um and you have some knowledge of the uh, you know and then occasionally there's a piece that you know you do a world premiere and there you that's the only kind it's very very rare isn't it that you conduct a piece even for the first time of course what i didn't mention was the pieces you've conducted 150 times before which Mm. need to be studied again as well but i mean it's only when you're doing a premiere pretty much that you start from absolutely nothing but the process has there are some similarities in that I kind of work in a pyramid way, as in I, I would never learn a piece from bar one until the last bar. Um, I take a kind of snapshot, of, first of all, of the whole thing. And then, and then I'll take the whole thing again in more detail. And then the whole thing again in yet more, you see what I mean? I, I kind of yeah, I keep yeah. mm. going deeper in. Um, so, so because it, because it's a never-ending process trying to get to know and trying to get inside a score i suppose that i'm always taking the whole thing with me and 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 uh, taking the whole piece up a level at the same time rather than finding myself um at some point at some point you have to interrupt the process because you've got to go and try and make it work in reality mm. and then you find okay well i've I've managed the first 15% I've, I've learned really well and the rest I know less about. So I try to kind of keep everything in mind all the time as I go into the next, um, into the next level. I have absolutely no fear of listening to other people's performances. I know that's always a, a debate um, and everybody has to find their, their answer to that question. Um, for me, if I'm conducting Beethoven, and uh, if I could, I don't, know, I don't know why I picked Beethoven, but you can actually do anything. If you could ask Fort Bengler some questions about it, or you could ask John Elliott Gardner some questions, or Arnon Kaur, whoever it is, why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, want to, to ask your great predecessors or colleagues what their opinion is on certain things, how they fix something, how something works, and then you make your own thing out of it. And as we were saying about orchestras and personality, again, it's really not a concern of mine to worry about, oh my goodness, will I sound like a copy of somebody else? I just don't think it works like that. And every performance that is given of a great piece of music adds another piece to the big 3D jigsaw, which is our 
community understanding of what this piece is. And any any performance of any piece of music is like a photograph. It, it, any performance is going to be of one side of the 3D jigsaw. Yeah. And some performances add a piece to the front and some add a piece to the back and some to the top. And, and over years and years and years, we all contribute and we as a musical community um, start to learn what these pieces are like. It's not possible to be giving all sides of something at the same time. You, you take one side, you add your, your word, and maybe next time you, you say something different about it. Um, and, and learning from what other people have added to the debate is a very important part of that. Well, I, I know that on a film I watched recently that Parvievi says the same, that anybody who approaches learning a piece of music and doesn't listen to recordings of it is sort of doing it in the dark, in the blind, you know, mm. whether for yeah. reasons of tradition or whether for reasons of interest or whether to, but you, you're going it, to, it's going to interest you. You're going to, you might learn things. You might learn not how not to do things, but it's all there to inform us. And we're in this current age of, you know, YouTube and Spotify, yeah. we'd be stupid not to use it. Absolutely. Stupid stupid. Not to. I yeah. mean, the, the thing is um, we all have to make sure that, that our ability to read scores works well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a risk that if you've never learned to read a score, um, you can learn all your pieces by listening to them and, uh, and kind of vaguely glancing at the score. That's a problem. But you and I um, both learned to read scores the right way. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of opportunity in life to keep checking your ability to do that um, and not tapping into the, to the accumulated knowledge of musicians far greater than ourselves would be, as you say, idiocy. So I read that you are about to take a sabbatical and become an airline. Oh, we all? Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're all taking a sabbatical at the moment. But, but this one was meant to happen um, as an airline pilot for Air France. So how did that come about? Yeah. It's another CBSO story. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Well, well, the, when I first spent time at the CBSO back in the early 90s, I met your wonderful principal bass player, John Tatt. John, uh, John Tatterstill, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. John Tatterstill took me. He was the very first person ever to take me up in a small airplane. Um, and uh, I don't, I have no recollection, but we, went, we drove out of Birmingham to some small airfield where he was a member of uh, an aero club. And he, he took me flying. And he let me... Uh, he let me take the controls and have a little feel of what it is to, to have an aircraft in your hands. And with that began, I mean, I'd say, I think he took me because someone had told me he was a pilot mm. and I spoke to him about it because since I was very small, um, since, since I was eight, I've had a, a ZX Spectrum and I had a flight simulator on that and I've been fascinated by airplanes and, uh, and the whole thing and I discovered he was a pilot and he said take you up and the sensations of it and the beauty of it I won't forget that first flight with him something wonderful um I became a musician in fact I became a professional musician um very young and uh flying was something that fascinated me but stayed a little bit of distance there were all sorts of unbelievably geeky things that I did over the years that I wouldn't dream of telling you <laughs> in public. But uh, you can be sure that my passion for flying never went away and expressed itself in very strange ways. 
and as you know, musician's life, you spend an enormous amount of time on the on the passenger side of the cockpit door. Mm. Um, and you know, a curious person who spends their life on airplanes is bound to have their curiosity about how that all works, only enhanced over time. And so then approaching my 40th birthday, um, I had this feeling, I said, I want to, I'd spent those years before working with Mark Stringer, who we spoke about earlier, the conducting teacher. And I'd, I got so much from that as a conductor and as a musician. Um, and as you said, it's an ongoing process, but I wanted, I wanted to keep that feeling of being a student, of learning, of, um, of, of uh, constant challenge and discovery. Yes, we always have that as musicians. I'm, <laughs> I'm aware of that, but I wanted something in addition. Um, and I wanted to give myself a, a kind of a gift um, turning 40. And the gift was to be to learn something new. Mm. And I went through various things in my mind about whether I would take um, time out and maybe do some academic studies or whatever it was. And in the end, I thought, you know, I've always wanted to do a private pilot's license. I never had time. I'm going to do it. And um, there was a wonderful school down in the south of France near where I was living at the time. And I've been told that that was a very serious place to learn to fly. And I went to speak to them and, and I organized it. And I, I had my first lesson just a short kind of one hour thing, which is again, rediscovering the plane and, um, and just getting a very basic idea of what it is it's all going to be about and the theory lesson. And there were so many things that clicked at that moment, um, but primarily amongst them was this incredible excitement at being at the beginning of a, of a journey and the beginning of, uh, of learning something new. I don't manage to cut the story short, but I do my best. But basically, <laughs> as with all interesting things in life, you 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 study and you work and you discover all these these incredible things and you, and challenges. And with flying, it's it's there's an incredible beauty to it and the, the physical sensation, but also the intellectual challenge and the things that you have to learn just on the ground from your books. And it's it's a kind of you know it's a wonderful mixture. There are so many different subjects that you have to uh, learn a little bit about just even to get going. Um, and the day I got my private pilot's license should have been this, you know, great feeling of satisfaction. And of course, it's not. What it is, it's a feeling of, well, that thing I've dreamt about all my life is absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, and all you become aware of is, you know, and, and, and everything. And so I never, I never stopped. Um, I kept saying, okay, what, you know, what's the next thing I can learn? What's the next qualification I can get? So I ended up qualified on the Airbus A320. Um, and obviously, it's quite a few steps between getting a private license and being a qualified airline pilot, but you don't need to worry about all that. But I mean, I had this constant, it, my constant companion when I wasn't doing music was what's the next thing I have to learn, the next thing I can discover about flying. And this, and the incredible joy of the learning and the incredible joy of flying at the same time. And yeah, I mean, look, I, I ended up in the position where I, when I applied for a job and, and I was successful and I found an airline who um, have a tradition of having people who, have slightly atypical profiles and an airline who are able to make allowances for that and they enjoy making allowances for that. Um, and we're 4,200 pilots at Air France. Um, and so if a few of us have, you know, you know, one who went to space and a few who are world champions at aerobatics and so there's a double or I think five-time world champion at some kind of crazy skiing mixed event and whatever and if there are a few of us who are a bit weird um, and it messes up the planning slightly with so many pipes it doesn't matter and I think that 
Um, for me, I mean, that's the subject of a whole podcast, I think. But the things I've learned from flying have been incredibly useful for me as a conductor. And the things I've learned over the years as a conductor helped me to be a better pilot. And I couldn't be happier than being able to combine these two fascinating and challenging professions in a very serious way. While we're talking about passions, Daniel, um, yes. in, in 1976, my father sat me down in front of the television and made me choose between two football teams because it was FA Cup <laughs> final day. And as a six-year-old, I went for the team in red. Now, you yeah. as, a, as a fellow Manchester United fan will know that in 1976, our team lost 1-0 to Southampton. And I, as a six-year-old, was in tears. Um, one year later, they get to the final again, and my father said, well, who are you supporting this time? But you better support the team you supported last year. So in 1977, we won. We beat Liverpool in the FA Cup final. That's my story, why I'm a Manchester United fan. What's yours? You know, I, I'm not sure that I even remember, because I, I, I remember the first thing for me, my first memory of being a Manchester United fan is my mother, um, who is a Liverpool fan, because she grew up around there and her very first job was in Liverpool. And so she, as a, as a kind of 18-year-old, 19-year-old, um, became a Liverpool fan. Gave that to my brother. Um, it seems to be infectious. Um, and I remember her, when I was young, mocking me for supporting what she called the Mother's Union. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't remember where... I mean, we have... I have family in Manchester. The, the, um, we talked about the amateur musicians in my family, but my... My uncle by marriage, um, so my aunt's husband was principal viola in the Halle Orchestra from, from Barbaroli's days onwards. Wow. Um, so there was a little bit of professional music making in the family. But that, that Manchester family um, are, you know, died in the world United fans. And uh, I went to Cheatham's as a 13-year-old. And certainly at that point, even though football wasn't a huge part of my life until I started uh, working in Trondheim, actually, because Trondheim... I mean, in Scandinavia, everybody has a, an English football team. Mm. And that's where I discovered the kind of rituals of, of watching every game in the week and going to the pub with all the friends and, and the, the passion for football that they had there. So, but my having been a United fan, I mean, I've been a United fan since I was very small, but why, I don't know. And, and I reject any accusations of being a glory hunter because I can assure you that back in those days there was absolutely no glory. No. Um, uh, as precious little glory these days, but we did have mm. some wonderful years in the meantime yeah i mean i say the same you know manchester united in 1976 were not the same team yeah. under alex ferguson <laughs> um so i'm you know i'm absolved of all that glory hunting stuff daniel at the end of the podcast i ask every conductor the same 10 questions and you will be no different so can we start with the first two questions what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate oh. um this question was asked to us when we were at school, I think probably 10, 11 years old. And I don't remember what I said, but I remember the answer of my friend, Richard Manley. <laughs> and he said, he's, he's, you know, for a 10 year old, it was so poetic, something about the, you know, the sound of leather against Willow. He was a big mm -hmm. cricket fan. Yeah. Um, I have discovered recently um, that there is no sound I love more than than test match special 
bubbling away in the background, even if I'm not following the game. And I have discovered also that even if they've got a test match on that was played last year and I know what the result is, I get the same pleasure from hearing it in the background as I did when it was all new and I had no idea what the result would be. So I will choose as my sound the sound of cricket and cricket commentary. Um, and sounds I can't stand. Oof. You know what? I realize I'm, I'm, I'm really, really bad at going anywhere where there's music on. Probably everybody says the same thing. Right? But um, I find it really hard to be in a restaurant or in a bar or even at home uh, with music uh, playing in the background, especially if it's above a certain level. I find that really, really difficult. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Wow. Um, I still think the thing that gives me most pleasure is, is any kind of travel. I think that if I had 24 hours, I mean, that's it. And we don't, we, I know we don't talk about that on this podcast, but it is one thing when I'm, when I'm not moving that I miss most is, is being up and seeing the earth from, from above. I think we spoke about my passion for flying mm. and the, the joy of being amongst the clouds and seeing the planet with a little bit of perspective. It's the most beautiful thing. So if I had 24 hours, I think I'd go, I'd go flying. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Some of my school friends saw or heard both Bernstein and Carrion in London. And they're the ones who are kind of two or three years older than me. And I didn't experience either of those conductors live. And everybody who did, especially people who really, you know, played with them or... or one of my friends who assisted Bernstein, they say nothing on the recordings that we listen to can give us, you know, can capture the, the, the power and the charisma and the, the intensity of what it was like to be in the room when those people were performing. To say that of, of the conductors of yesteryear that I did experience, um, the most strong and incredible things I ever heard were with Claudio Bardo. They really were. Um, and it's very fashionable now to be a bit snooty about Carrie for example. But just speaking as a music lover and as a kind of someone who attempts to do the same profession, I'm more and more blown away by the things I love of his. I love more and more and more. The things I don't love, whatever. Um, we're never going to agree with somebody on everything. But um, everybody will say Fort Bengler. Everybody will say Carlos Kleiber. And there are reasons for that. Um, and I'll say Nicolas Anoncourt, because I still, for enormous swathes of the repertoire, there's nobody who I listen to, I think, yeah, that's, that's the language. You sometimes wonder when you're listening to music, something can sound very beautiful, but it sounds as if someone's reading poetry in a language they don't speak. And with him, you think, finally, I understand what, what, what these words mean um, with pretty much everything. So with all the love and, and, and admiration for all the great conductors, maybe if you made me choose one, I would still say I'm important. And who would be a favorite current conductor? Oh, that's just mean, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna say, um, I'm going to say John Elliott Gardner because, um, because he's on my mind today for various reasons. And because I can't think of a, anybody who, Every single thing I've ever heard him do has seemed as if it were um, 
a, you know, a project of the most utmost importance that's been thought about for 50 years and finally came to fruition. Um, so we all do concerts and some of us, you know, we do some concerts that are better and some concerts that are worse and, you know, we try to have a good ratio or whatever. But, but um, with John Elliott, every single thing I've ever heard him do, whether it's live or whether it's on recording, seems to be the fruit of, of, of you know, kind of lifetimes deliberation and preparation. And it's always fascinating and, and, and challenging and satisfying. And so there are so many conductors today that, um, that I admire beyond belief. But, but I picked him and why not? What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? It's very easy to answer that from a technical point of view. Yes, um, much yeah. easier than, than to answer. So I mean, te- from a technical point of view, probably I'd say that the, the Thomas Addis Totentanz, which is a piece I absolutely adore. But for some reason, I never conducted a piece where I felt so terrified every moment I was going to fall <laughs> off the paper. Um, I think the most difficult piece in the world to conduct is one that I will never agree to conduct, which is <laughs> the Eine Kleine Nachtmusik. <laughs> I think there's something there. I think there are certain pieces um, which which must have genius in them, but but um, we've had it bashed out of our heads, and I don't know what on earth you do. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that the moment I felt most out of my depth was as a 21-year-old making my debut with the Berlin Philharmonic. And the one, I jumped in for Franz Welsemerst, who, who had to cancel after the first rehearsal. And we changed the program to pieces that I knew. And the mm. one piece on the program that couldn't be changed because there were two soloists and they were both already in town was the Brahms double concerto. Um, and of all the moments of fear and horror I've had as a conductor, nothing compares huh. to trying to conduct that. That I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky piece at the best of times. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but that that combination of that piece and that situation is still for me the most terrifying thing that's <laughs> ever happened. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Hmm. Um. Look, I'm I'm like everybody else. Uh, my, I live my life through my through my telephone or through my iPad or whatever. I mean, probably I'd say my iPad, because absolutely everything, the music I'm studying, the books I read, the the films I watch, um, my contact with the outside world. So I, I have a horrible feeling that everybody either said that or said something a thousand times more interesting. But honestly, we've just got to that stage, haven't we? And that yeah, is yeah. your life. Your life lives inside that little flat box. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? That's a horrible question. I mean, it's a great question. You know, I'm going to come, I'm just going to come across as you know, some kind of awful um, hippie, but I'm really struggling um, because, you know, it's incredibly difficult, but that's why we love it. Yeah. Um, we have to travel all the time away from home, but that's an unbelievable privilege. I think when I was a young, when I was a young conductor, I used to jump all over the place like a lunatic, um, with no control, and it kept me thin. And now I'm an older conductor, and it's more and more difficult to stay thin. And it, slowly, I get better at conducting, and I jump around less and less, which is a catastrophe. So I think I would make I would make us burn more calories through concentration rather than through jumping. <laughs> That's a brilliant answer, <laughs> Daniel. I'm changing question nine for you because of the obvious reasons. So 
what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? And you can't be an airline <laughs> pilot. <laughs> I've got to go into a third profession now. Yeah. Um, goodness me. I think, you know, it's related, but I think that if I could master anything and, um, and do something, I, I would have loved. My father was a scientist. My father, was, uh, my father taught engineering science at Oxford, and some of that is connected to, the, to, to my having wanted to be a pilot. It, it sounds weird, but like, you know, another day I'll explain it. But I think that I would have loved to have been a physicist. I would have absolutely adored that. I'm not sure I would have had in any way the capacity, but um, if I could, if we're just uh, dreaming here, that's what I, I would have loved to have been. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Uh, white bread, really good white bread, olive oil, salt, red wine. Daniel Harding, what a pleasure it's been. I've enjoyed chatting to you for the entire two hours nearly. Yeah. And uh, I hope one day we can sit down and watch a game of Manchester United beating somebody. Absolutely. Heavily. It would be a real joy. It, it may happen again. We may beat somebody again one day. You never know. <laughs> it's been great talking to you, Mike. Thank you. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I talk with someone who juggles being a conductor with running a superb mentoring program and being one of the best sopranos on the planet. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>